0: Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking with Mara Grinberg about his most recent publication, The Soviet Jewish Bookshelf, Jewish Culture and Identity Between the Lines. Marat is a professor of Russian and comparative literature at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. He specializes in 20th century Russian literature and culture and 20th century Jewish literature and film. He is the author of I Am To Be Read Not From Left From Right, But In Jewish, From Right to Left, The Poetics of Boris Slutsky and Alexander Askoldov, the Commissar. And most recently, the text we are discussing today, The Soviet Jewish bookshelf. Marat, welcome to the channel.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you.
0: One of the things that I had left out of your bio is your experience as an immigrant to the United States from Ukraine in the early 1990s. This is an experience that you subtly wave, or weave throughout the Soviet Jewish bookshelf. Will you share with us a little bit about how your experiences and those of your family influenced the writing of this book?
1: Uh, Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for having me and for uh, discussing my, uh, my recent book. Uh, And yeah, and thank you for starting with this question. I think uh, an interesting and important question, because this project, uh, this book was, was, was really clearly, you know, a scholarly endeavor. uh, And, you know, many years of research went into it, went to it. But at the same time, it was a very personal, uh, a personal project uh, for me. And, and to you know to to some extent uh, the history of my family, uh, you know which which is representative of the of the Soviet Jewish experience in in a lot of respects. So the, the history of my family is part of this uh, you know is part of this uh, book uh, as well. Uh, uh, you know I, I start with the uh, in my mind, you know as I was writing this book and uh, I sort of had the bookcase, uh, that we had in our apartment in, you know, in, in the city of first Kamenetspovodilsky uh, in Ukraine. This is where I was born. And then Khmelnytsky, where I, you know, spent my childhood and youth. And from that city, we immigrated to the United States. So kind of having that bookcase uh in my parents' apartment and in my grandparents' apartment, what was what, you know, what books that bookcase uh, contained and excavating it and, and comparing it with the other bookcases and, And how that contributes to, uh, you know, my uh, attempt to recreate that uh, uh, cultural, intellectual Soviet Jewish, uh, Soviet Jewish milieu. Um, So. So it is it is it it is a a big part of the project. And, uh, you know, I talk about it in the uh, in the last chapter uh, in the book, of course, keeping in mind that so many Soviet Jews have immigrated, great majority have immigrated to. You know to israel to the united states to germany uh and and so many took their books with them and and you could and you know imagine these suitcases uh packed with books and 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 you know boxes that that were shipped and and what happens to those books in these in these new places so in, in a sense kind of the soviet jewish bookshelf is scattered is scattered now all over uh all over the world uh and um just just to add to that and you know i i write about that in, in in the introduction the real kind of impetus for for the book was when I, I was an undergraduate uh, student at Columbia University in New York and uh, at the Jewish Theological Seminary, having only lived in this country in the United States for two years and uh, I was taking a course in German literature at Columbia University and went to talk to uh, to the professor and uh, and and I started to talk about Leon Feuchtwanger. Uh, this German Jewish author who was incredibly influential for Soviet Jews, and I have a chapter in my book devoted uh, to him. And uh, and 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 so the professor looked at me and said, sort of said, you know, why why do you want to talk about Fyodor You know, kind of, a, in, not a minor writer, a forgotten writer, not not a terribly significant writer. And 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 to me that was just a this a shock, really, <laughs> right? That that this you know. Giant that we worshipped and and that had so much to do with shaping our identity, actually, it just just has has no significance for, uh, you know, in the states, even for a scholar a scholar of German literature. So that really made me think, you know, way back then, as I think I was my second year uh, at Columbia, that that Soviet Jewish experience is not known. Uh, and that really needs, it really needs to be explained and, and, and translated and interpreted, uh, and, uh, because instead of it, there are all these, uh, myths and conceptions and, and kind of, you know, preconceptions. So, so that started me going and, and, and again, to kind of my family history, uh, you know, which goes back centuries in Ukraine and, um, uh, was, was, was really something that was on my mind. And as, as a scholar yourself, you know, you know, sometimes it works when kind of the personal and the scholarly kind of merges and sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, but I, I hope, I hope, uh, that in this case, uh, it, 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 it did work. And kind of the feedback that I've been receiving about the book shows that that kind of resonates resonates with readers.
0: I think it did work in this case, which is why I asked the question. Um, it made me, as a reader, feel connected to you as a writer, but also to the larger Soviet Jewish experience, uh, which I I think is what you were trying to get across, right? Um, yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: absolutely. As a scholar, I also noticed uh, that the Soviet Jewish bookshelf offers this kind of much needed challenge to this large swath of established scholarship on the Soviet Jewish experience, uh, particularly during the late socialist period. As you mentioned in your introduction, much of the established scholarship is overshadowed by works like Elie Wiesel's The Jews of Silence. However, as you prove, Soviet Jews were hardly silent how did they express themselves and navigate jewish identity during this period more importantly what role did literature play in this expression
1: yeah thank you another another excellent question um so you know i should i should preface by saying that uh you know of course there there is so much scholarship uh you know excellent scholarship in in literature and history uh in cinema uh you know that that has been done and that explores uh, you know the world of Soviet Jewry. Uh, most of that scholarship deals with uh the early Soviet period and with the Stalinist period. Right, there is not not so much that delves into the post uh you know post World War II uh post Holocaust post Stalinist period. And of course those periods uh are, are tremendously important. Right, and 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 this is sort of where where I come in. Uh, but you know just to mention if you a number of scholars that has, have done so much so much work uh, in this area, uh, you know Anna Stanius, Elisa uh, Bemparad, uh, Maxime Schreier, uh, you know Jeffrey Weidlinger, yep the so, so I am I'm sort of I am following I, I am part of that cohort and, and very much in dialogue with them uh, and coming in with this investigation of the of the of these later uh, of these later periods. Um, so you talked about silence, right? And mentioning, you know, Elie Wiesel's very influential book. And I don't want to discount its importance, you know, that comes out in early, early 1960s. Well, uh, Wiesel goes uh, to the Soviet Union and, and meets Jews there, uh, you know, in Moscow in a number of other places and describes uh, the Soviet Jewish community as, as certainly persecuted, uh, as silent. That is what that means to him is that they're unable to practice Judaism, right? He sort of sees them as yearning for for piety, and then and then Wiesel turns that around and he said, well, actually, it's not just the Soviet Jews who are silent because of the country that they live in, but it's the American Jews who are silent, the American Jews who are not doing anything to help their brethren in the Soviet Union, and he says, well, speak up, and that of course leads to the a uh, uh, movement uh in the united states you know to to free uh to uh, to free the soviet jews um and well as i said it was an important an important book for its time and 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 sort of created that important image of the soviet jews uh, for its time but but it is deeply insufficient and it and it does not reflect the complexity and 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 the reality right uh because what what what's to me at least most interesting about but the Soviet Jewish experience, well, of course, we can talk about anti-Semitism that existed on all levels, right? Uh, uh, and and depends on what period, what, you know, what what uh, kind of uh, era we, we're talking about so that anti-Semitism would be expressed differently. But it was an indelible part of Soviet Jews' lives. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, you know, they were able to negotiate, to deal with it, to overcome it. Somebody more successfully, somebody less successfully. But what is more significant for me is that there did not exist a public space for expressing for expressing one's Jewishness, right? And of course, and we'll probably talk more about that keeping in mind, you know, the periods that I'm discussing, a great majority of Soviet Jews are secular. Ah, uh, for a majority of them, their first language, their native language is Russian. Yeah. Uh, so they're certainly acculturated, escalated into a wider society, but at the same time, a majority of them do feel that difference, right? Do know that they're different, and that's not only because of antisemitism, right? Uh, it is because of these, of of some something more significant, something more essential, and that that space just does not exist where you can where you can express it. Yeah, uh, I always talk about it when I. You know, when I discussed the book, uh, just the very word Jew, right? if that was said out loud, uh, which would happen on very, very rare occasions, uh, that would either provoke laughter or something deeply offensive. Right. But it's as if on paper, certainly, as far as kind of the Soviet policies are concerned, Jews are recognized as a legitimate ethnicity. Uh, there is even the Jewish Autonomous Region in Birobidzhan. Yiddish is recognized as a, as a Jewish language. All of that is on paper, yeah. Of course, the Soviet regime would never acknowledge that there was that there was anti-Semitism, but in reality, there is this absolute vacuum, yeah. Uh, for, for when it comes to Jewishness, which means that one would go through the entirety of you know secondary education, higher education, and not once would the word Jew. Or anything Jewish be mentioned, right? Uh, there is just this, there is just this whole. And so but if, and that's a big part of my project, if if I'm claiming that there was a Soviet Jewish culture, not just kind of an intuitive understanding of identity, not just a reaction of to anti-Semitism, but in fact, there were kind of these cultural thrusts, then we need to think about knowledge. Right. We need to think about how the Jewish knowledge was transmitted from one generation to the next. And this is where that bookshelf and literature. Right. You asked about literature. This is where that this is where that comes in. Uh, so within that vacuum, uh, Soviet Jews turned to books, variety of books, various genres, uh, in many cases, fiction, Uh, In some cases, we'll probably talk about, you know, translations, other genres, and used those books, most of which were published officially. And that's also really, really interesting, right, within this kind of anti-Semitic environment, within this vacuum uh, that existed. At the same time, the regime allowed for quite a few books to be published that had Jewish content. Now, in many cases, those books, as I say, needed to be read between the lines. And 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 there was kind of these subterranean Jewish layers, but in some other cases, it was absolutely, it was absolutely explicit. Why the regime allowed for that to publish is another question. We can, you know, and we can talk about it. And I discussed that in the book. But but the books, which were in general so valued and prized in Soviet society, right? Books were something that you know, people hunted for because, of course, within a Soviet environment, nothing is just readily available. Yeah. Uh, But books were something like, you know, a pair of jeans that one absolutely needed to have or that or that, you know, actual bookshelf, you know, a piece of furniture that one wanted. Books were in that uh, in that in that category. Right. And and so turning books provided provided were able rather were able to fill that vacuum uh, for Soviet for Soviet Jews, right? Books, if you walked into a Soviet Jewish apartment, which would have no visible signs of anything Jewish, right? Of course, we can't imagine something like a mezuzah on the door, staring, or a menorah, if there was nothing like that, or a majority would never have anything like that. So the books that were in the bookcase were that visible sign, a signal to the fellow Jews that we sort of we speak, uh, we speak the same uh, the same language, right? And 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 again, thinking about these books, thinking about the content, thinking about the commentary that they provided, about about Jewish history, about Judaism, uh, about just Jewish identity, right? I'm I'm thinking about in the book I'm talking about reading as a very much kind of experiential uh, process. Right. Uh, really, reading is something that enhances and bolsters and nourishes uh, one's identity. Uh, and so and so, yeah, so that's that's the that's the, li- the 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 role that literature and I mean literature in a wider sense, not just kind of fiction and, you know, but but a variety of genres played that role. And again, how that role was played depended on what historical period we're talking about. Yeah, the books that were really important in the '60s are not the books that would be really important in the '70s or the '80s. Although there are certainly some books that run through all of these uh, decades, right? I'm sort of trying to establish in the book a canon uh, of of that Soviet uh, of that Soviet Jewish bookshelf, and uh, you know, and if we think about the entirety of kind of Jewish history and the role that books, sacred books, played, right? It, with the Soviet Jewish experience, Soviet Jewish condition, we're not talking about sacred books, of course, right? But we're talking about secular, secular books. And we're talking about fragments. I think that's also, you know, by, it is impossible to talk about, you know, Soviet Jewish culture as something that was wholesome and comprehensive, right? Because again, all of, because it existed within, within the confines of the authoritarian, Mm -hmm. um, hostile authoritarian regime. So we are talking about Uh, fragments right but 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 what i'm interested in is how the readers took these fragments and started to put them together for themselves right to to fill that vacuum right and to create for themselves that uh, you know what david Roskiss uh refers to refer to as kind of the usable past right something that you can tap into insert yourself within that within that lineage and see what that does to your identity and something that you can pass on right so, so so some of reading some of these books was sort of like a rite of passage for soviet jews right and uh and finally i'll say you know it is it is hard to 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 create a global picture because soviet jews did not constitute a sort of an official autonomous community there are of course regional dif- differences that we can that we can think about but at the same time because all of this existed within this authoritarian environment, you know, we're on the same day everywhere in the Soviet Union, school children read the same book, it doesn't matter where they were. So in a sense, kind of existing living within that, in that environment actually helped in sort of creating that, creating that uniform, uniform identity. Well, again, keeping in mind that it was fragmented. And there are certainly there are certainly differences that we can uh, think about. And um and yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop here.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I actually found the kind of piecing together of this canning very thought provoking uh, as a reader um, and as somebody who's generally interested in Soviet Jewish history. I've certainly heard of some of the names you've mentioned, like Ehrenberg and Babel, of course. Um, but would you mind sharing some of the kind of core texts that some of our listeners might be less familiar with and the core writers that folks might be less
1: familiar with yeah thank you thank you uh right right so you know uh as i said i'm sort of trying to reconstruct excavate that's kind of the term that i'm you know using and, and and think about and just to go a little bit a little bit back and thinking about the idea of the bookshelf you know more more generally and the importance of the bookshelf bookcase in, you know modern russian culture literature and modern jewish culture and literature uh so osip mandoshtam you know, great, great Russian poet, great Russian Jewish poet. You know, uh, killed, killed, killed by Stalin. In, in his autobiography, Noise of Time, that he writes in the 1920s, he talks about the bookcase in his parents' house and the various layers uh, within that bookcase and and the importance that the bookcase held and and how one's identity is shaped by the contents of the uh, of the bookcase and, and 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 he calls the bookcase a geological bed right? This kind of geological bed that needs to be excavated. and that's that's the kind of the image that I constantly come back to. Uh, and again, coming back to your first question about sort of my own family, it is it is it is part of that kind of geology, um, uh, you know, geology as well. So so a huge part of that geology is uh, are, are the Russian books, right? Books books written in Russian. Uh, you know, and here I'm primarily thinking about about fiction prose as well as uh, as well as poetry and, uh, and 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 you know books of various various genres uh, some that dealt uh, with history and very 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 few that actually dealt with the with the contemporaneous experience of Soviet Jews in other words the Soviet regime sort of at times had no problem with talking about Jews in the Tsarist Russia in the pre-Soviet times, right? Because that was before, and with the idea that with, you know, with, with the Soviet Union things, uh, things changed. But to actually acknowledge that Soviet Jews, you know, of, of today, be it the 60s, the 70s, right? That they're they're here now and they have lives and they have right stories to tell, that was something that the regime would very rarely, rarely, rarely do, right? So kind of the Soviet Jews needed to see themselves through those historical through those historical works and actually I discuss in a book how that's not so dissimilar from the experience of American Jews right and how American Jewish identity in that post-holocaust world was also shaped Jessica Yellen writes about that uh by ethnography and kind of by coming back to that East European uh East European Jewish history yeah uh but you so you talked about some of the names some of the names that were so important like Ilya uh Ilya Ehrenburg or Isaac Babel, right? Babel, of course, was also killed by Stalin, and there is a revival—a uh, revival of writers like Babel during the thaw period, right? During the Khrushchev thaw, were uh, a period of cultural renaissance and, and and easing easing of restrictions and kind of starting to rethink the Stalinist uh, past, only to a very mm-hmm. limited extent. But kind of the the bulk of the canon of the Soviet Jewish bookshelf is really created during this uh, during this thaw period. Uh, where Ehrenburg, who actually comes up with sort of the, the, the just the name Tha Otipil in Russian, uh, and and while these names are are well known at least in you know certain circles as you uh, as you said, although Babel is one of the very very few writers who sort of entered the canon of modern Jewish literature in general, uh, what I'm interested in my book is not so much interpretations of their works, although I do that as, as well. But really trying to imagine or reconstruct how their books were read again by the readers in the 1960s, uh in the 1970s, what attracted the Jewish readers toward uh toward their books, and again what reading strategies they developed, uh they developed to uh to read them. So uh uh just again th- coming back to Ehrenburg and Babel uh so, for instance, you know, Ehrenborg. I put Ehrenborg in dialogue with Leon Feuchtfanger, this German Jewish author that I mentioned earlier, who was tremendously important. And, and Ehrenburg was not a fan of Feuchtfanger for, for a number of reasons. Right. I sort of look at them as these two poles of, of kind of this, you know, Soviet Jewish identity, right? And and Soviet Jewish readers kind of picking and choosing between the two of them, right? Uh uh, depending again on what historical period we're talking about, or the publications of Babil's, uh writings again during the thaw period, uh, it's not just I'm just not not just interested in the in the works themselves and the content, but the, what I call the paratextual, the prefaces uh, to these editions. Actually, uh, Ehrenberg's own preface to the first uh, edition of Babel that comes out in the in the nineteen sixties, but also uh, a preface, for instance, by the scholar Lydia Palak. Right. And 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 because the, the paratext show, the prefaces, the commentaries was, again, something that the readers would be would be drawn to. Right. Sometimes, again, reading between the lines and and parsing all the ideological stuff and seeing what they can glean out of that. So in other words, what I'm saying, even with the writers that are more well known, I'm kind of. I'm approaching them from a different uh, from a different angle, right? Again, trying to sort of see how they were read within that uh, within that time. But I'll mention a few other names, right? That uh, are not are would not be as well known. So one really really fascinating writer, woman writer, is Alexander Brustein. Uh, who wrote this? Uh, a book that was really sort of cult and, and deeply, deeply popular. Uh, you know, in English the the title would be something "Road Runs Ahead," in Russian "Дорога вдаль." Uh, which are uh you know semi autobiographical uh a book about a, a childhood of a Jewish girl in Vilna. Uh, pre, you know, pre, uh, pre-revolutionary, uh, uh, pre-Soviet, uh, pre-Soviet Vilna, and the life of this Jewish family in Vilna, and that book to this day, to this day, there's so much on social media. There are all these groups and networks that that discuss this book, and it was going kind of multi-multi volume, but it was priced tremendously, right? Because first of all, it spoke uh, to, you know, to teens and particularly girls. Uh, One can sort of discuss it as a a feminist fiction uh, uh, even. But there were so many of these Jewish fragments there, right, about this pre, uh, about Jewish life, you know, uh, pre-Soviet, pre-Soviet Jewish life. And again, it's very, very interesting how Bruchstein, who was, she was herself a pedagogue and, you know, and she wrote this book already when she was, you know, quite uh you know quite old and uh, and and I think she del- so deliberately kind of she realized what she was doing that is she realized that her readers would be able to read their own experience their own Jewish experience and identity through uh through her uh through her characters right so Alexander Brustein, their books need to be needs to be translated into English it's a it's a it's a fun you know and again it was published officially because it sort of you know sent out all the correct also ideological signals right uh but but it was just filled filled with these jewish uh jewish fragments uh another writer who was tremendously important and and his book was one of the very very few that touched on this what I can kind of this contemporaneous Soviet Jewish experience not just kind of this you know the pre pre-Soviet past uh and that's Anatoly Rybakov Anatoly Rybakov uh and his novel Heavy Sand uh Pesok uh that comes out later uh early early 80s uh and that was absolutely cult cult book so this was reading that book was one of those sort of rites of passage you know i described in in my book, how my grandfather, you know, would just take it off the shelf and, and say, you have to read it. You have to read it to understand. And I'm quoting verbatim. You have to under- read it to understand what it means to be a Soviet Jew. Uh, and as a, you know, 12 year old, 13 year old remember just saying, what is he saying? Like, I, I don't really want to read this book. Now, of course, I understand exactly, exactly what, what he was saying. And heavy sand on the one hand. You know, Rebakov was a very popular writer. Uh, and on the one hand, it's kind of this conventional uh, Soviet novel about World War II. Uh, but in the, on, the, on the other hand, it was one of the very few completely explicit Jewish novels, right? A story of a Soviet Jewish family. So much of it had to do with the, uh, uh, you know, with the Holocaust. But, but it was one of the very few books that really explicitly gave a voice to Soviet Jewish experience, right? And Rabakov was doing it again uh, between the line, well, explicitly but at the same time between the lines. In other words, the reader needed to take what he said with a grain of salt and Regan realize, right, everything that uh, exists within this authoritarian uh, environment dictated by censorship, All of everything needed to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, but so doing that, but also there was so much there. Uh, that one can get again about uh, uh, about Soviet Jewish identity, and interestingly, the book was translated into English, came out in the United States, and received this wonderfully positive review by Elie Wiesel That we started our conversation with, who I think by that point was actually able to see that the Soviet Jews are not the Jews of silence, right? Uh, and uh, you know, other other writers, other writers that uh, might be very very surprising uh to the readers of my book and actually were and kind of surprising to me you know when i began to research and write for science fiction uh science fiction was tremendously tremendously important uh and the two writers that i'm particularly discussing are the strugatsky brothers arkady and boris who were you know one of the most important uh soviet sci-fi authors of the you know post-war period from you know 1960s and on absolutely worshiped uh, by their readers, some of their works were published officially. Some they were not able to, uh, you know, were uh, could not publish officially. But uh, their books, and they were their father was Jewish. They're just filled, 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 filled with these all these Jewish fragments, right? Uh, some that had to do with the Holocaust, some that had to do with anti-Semitism. Some are more philosophical nature. Uh, And all of that within this deeply complex, witty and fascinating science fiction, uh, science fiction world uh, that they uh, that they create. And of course, science fiction, by its very definition, you know, through allegories, through other devices, calls for reading between the lines. Right. And and, you know, and that's another thing that it doesn't mean that only Jewish readers read these works. Absolutely not. You know, writers like to come back, Ehrenburg and Babel. Uh, were so important for Soviet intelligence in general, right? Uh, but there was a special relationship that the Jewish readers had with these books, and special again reading strategies that they developed. And that's very true of the Strugatsky brothers and the sci-fi uh, and their sci-fi novels. Uh, another writer that I would mention, the last one is Yuri Tryfanov. Uh, Again, one of the most important Russian writers in general you know, of, of the post-war period, again, from the 1960s and on, uh, who was also, was also half, half Jewish, uh, one of these cult writers for the intelligentsia of the stagnation period, right, the 1970s or so, uh, but again, there's just so many, so many of these Jewish fragments, and, and by definition, by his own definition, Trifonov was a writer who needed to be read between the lines, right, and, 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 uh, uh, and so his his books, his novels that that deal with, uh, uh you know the, the the Stalinist past, the 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 Soviet milieu again of the of the of the 1970s and so on. There are so many of these Jewish innuendos and fragments there, right? And and there is so much about about Jewish identity within Soviet contexts that these readers. Could gleam from them and did and did do so right. So, so these are just a few kind of who who, that I um, that I can um, that I can mention. And again, Trifanov is is translated widely into English. uh, Although we do need new translations. (laughs) Uh,
0: Uh, I want to return to one of the topics that you brought up that some of these authors are engaging, and that's of course the Holocaust. I think in established historiography, there has been this trend towards talking about uh, Jews as understanding themselves as part of this peaceful Soviet victims narrative. And most recently, scholars have started to try to pull away from that. And this is something that you actually take up, the ways in which Jews try to remember the Holocaust and use literature as a device to do so. So I'm wondering if you could expand on that just a little bit for listeners today.
1: Thank you, thank you. A very important and uh, an interesting, uh, interesting question. Uh, um, and here again, I should say, I There, there's, there is quite a bit of work that has been done, on, on, uh, on the Holocaust, on, you know, Shoah, uh, in, um, in Soviet literature, in, 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 Soviet film. And again, I should mention the work of Maxim Schreier in particular, uh, but also work of Arkady Zeltzer, uh, who is a historian at Yad Vashem uh in, in jerusalem uh and, and so kind of my work is very much in dialogue uh in dialogue with them and and yes right officially right holocaust the 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 unique the specificity of jewish faith during the war was completely obfuscated you know in official official soviet uh historiography you mentioned kind of this uh you know uh uh euphemistic uh, language uh, about peaceful, peaceful Soviet citizens. Uh, But at the same time, at the same time, there was definitely memory about the Holocaust that Soviet Jews, uh, that the Soviet Jews had and that was passed down through a variety, a variety of means, uh, probably two most important ways uh, of, of doing that. And this is where Arkady Zeltzer's work is so important uh monuments the monuments that were put up uh, on the sites of massacres keeping in mind that the great majority of soviet jews uh, were killed were killed uh on the, on those sites in in ukraine in belarus uh and and so and so jews coming back to these places uh after after the war some from evacuation some returning from the uh from, from the front started to put up monuments uh often the regime would uh, uh would not look upon that favorably, right? And sometimes they would sort of allow for that to happen, and sometimes those monuments would be taken, uh, would be removed fast. But anyway, what's interesting about these monuments are the inscriptions, not just, the, of course, this is a way to memorialize, but but the inscriptions. And some of those inscriptions in Russian, again, would use this very kind of general obfuscating language, but very often, very often, there would be inscriptions in Yiddish that talk about our uh our, our brothers and sisters and and mothers and fathers who were killed. Uh in some cases there would the dates of the massacre would be uh in the you know in the Hebrew dates from the from the Hebrew calendar and there would even be scriptural scriptural uh inscriptions uh, and so so that was that was one way. Another way, and, and a major major way for how this Holocaust memory was transmitted was through literature. Was through literature, uh, which also again relates back to the monuments because I talked about the literature and the inscriptions are are part of that. And, and Zeltzer talks about that. Uh, talks about that as well. Uh, so literature played played enormous uh, an enormous role here again. Coming back to the Soviet Jewish bookshelf. So 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 the books that that preserve that Holocaust memory. Yeah, and that again allowed Soviet mm-hmm. Jews to, to to kind of carry on uh, that memory and work through that memory. They come from the they come from the Soviet Jewish bookshelf, um, and so I'll, I'll just mention a number, uh, you know, a number of writers that were uh, incredibly incredibly important. Maybe you know, going back to Ehrenborg and starting with Ehrenborg, who did so much to start that process, right, and did so much to 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 memorialize uh the murder the murdered jews within the official within the official context uh so the diary of anne frank in the russian translation comes out i think it's 1960 1961 uh and it was an absolute um uh, what's the best word uh, just just a treasure a treasure for soviet jews to this day again thinking about my own family i have the edition the first edition of the anne frank's diary which was on my Grandparents' uh, bookshelf and that traveled with us to the United States and now it is it is on my shelf. The preface, so it's not just the content, of course, of the of the diary, but the preface to the diary was written by Ehrenburg, yeah, where he within just a few paragraphs essentially presents the entire history of the Holocaust, yeah. Uh, saying that you know that the six million, the six million speak through this one. Uh, through this one girl, yeah uh, so so a book like that, a book like that. Uh, another book which absolutely must be translated into English and it hasn't hasn't been done, done that, is a book by Masha or Maria Maria Rolnikaite, uh, which at sometimes was sort of seen as the Soviet Anne Frank. and her her book was uh, in a sense, a, a memoir, a recollection of her time in the Vilna ghetto. Uh, it was originally written in Yiddish, uh, and you know, then it was translated into Lithuanian, uh, and then eventually was published, uh, published in the nineteen sixties uh, in Russian again with the help of uh, help of Ehrenborg. It was later translated into French. It is an incredible text, an incredible text uh, that, as I said, should really going kind to of enter the canon of Holocaust literature uh, in general, and. Rolnikaj had to take a lot of stuff out, right? There there are quite a few things that the censors demanded that she take out. But even, and now we have a full edition uh, of her book, but even keeping that in mind, this was an absolutely, thoroughly and explicitly Holocaust book, yeah? Uh, Where, again, sort of between the lines, reading between the lines, the readers could see how Rolnikite is thinking about the silence of the over the holocaust in the soviet union yeah and so one did, did need to read it uh, between the lines and kind of fill in those gaps as well but but it was an absolutely explicit explicit holocaust uh, holocaust text and then of course thinking about the the text around babyn yar yeah uh, the ravine on the outskirts of kiev one of the first largest massacres where majority of kiev's jews were uh, uh, were massacred uh, one of the very, very few places, interestingly, where there really was no monument, right? So in these other in these other smaller, you know, smaller cities, uh, uh, as I said, these monuments were put up in Kiev that did not happen. Uh, and, you know, there is an outcry by a number of uh, uh, intellectuals uh, like Viktor Nikrasov, for instance, a number of Ukrainian intellectuals, right, uh, who were not Jewish. Who were demanding during that thought period that the monument uh, be put up. Eventually, it is put up later, you know, in the uh, in the 1970s, uh, and it's a monument that does not have any any indication, you know, there's nothing Jewish about the monument. It's a typical kind of socialist realist monument. Of course, later after, you know during Perestroika, oh, yeah. we have different monuments. and uh, but but the whole literature around around Babin Yar, uh that was written, and of course it's poetry, probably most famously uh uh we can think about Yevgeny Zoshchenko's poem uh about uh about Babinyar but also but also other texts uh uh the uh, uh, a novel uh the genre is interesting but he calls it a kind of documentary novel himself And Anatoly Kuznetsov uh uh which is uh, uh, uh as i said in this semi 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 autobiographical he calls a documentary novel about uh, the war period in Kiev and um and Bobby Yar. and interestingly, what's so interesting about the way that this Holocaust memory functioned in the Soviet context? it was uh, it was multi-directional, right? It was it was kind of indelibly connected to the other atrocities and the other traumas of Soviet history. Of course, the Stalinist, uh, and it, Kuznetsov links the Holocaust to Holodomor, right? The the famine uh, in Ukraine Institute you know, created, created by, uh, created by Stalin. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, poetry, poetry. And that's my sort of a, a topic that's very dear to my heart because mm-hmm. as a scholar, I started with poetry, my first book that, 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 that you mentioned on, on Buddy Slutsky, uh, a fascinating major uh, Soviet Jewish uh, poet that as it's a prior to my work was really not sort of seen as a major Jewish figure. And, and, and I, present him very much as kind of this major Jewish figure. So and you know he was he created an enormous uh uh body of work that uh that dealt with the Holocaust. Very, very few of those poems were were actually published. Yeah. Uh and so but but uh the kind of the, the literature around Babin Yar is a huge part is a huge part of this Holocaust uh of this Holocaust literature. Yeah. So so I think yeah as I said kind of Rolnik is tremendously important. The Babi Yar and um and uh um but there were there were other 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 ones as well and i just mentioned right it's interesting that with the war in ukraine of course yeah kind of the that holocaust passed and you know that it's it's at the front of our of our minds uh and and uh there's just still so many misconceptions about as you know soviet jewish memory especially when it comes to the uh, to the holocaust and you can you can read some of the sort of uh uh you know things that were written about Zelensky, the you know, the, the the president of Ukraine, and some of the statements that that he made and the explanations for those were, well, you know, he's a Soviet, you know, he's a Soviet Jew, but what, what does he know? Like they really didn't know, they really didn't didn't understand. So kind of appreciating that that the richness of of Soviet Jewish memory about the Holocaust is is very, very important for understanding what is happening you know, what is, what is happening today uh, as well. And the connection between all these different kind of moving parts, as I said, you know, Jewish, Soviet, Ukrainian, uh, Russian is, is, is rich and complex and, 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 and really interesting, I think.
0: So listeners by now have uh, hopefully already figured out that you're really using this bookshelf as a framing device for understanding um, the various uh, layers and complexities of Soviet Jewish identity. Um, and I wanted to take a moment to talk about the bottom shelf and the way that you use the bottom shelf um, as a framing device in the text uh can you tell us a little bit more about what's on the bottom shelf and why it's so important
1: thank you thank you yeah uh the bottom shelf right uh or shelves yeah i don't know um and this is again sort of coming back to this idea of the you know the bookshelf as a geological bed that has all these layers that need to be excavated so uh you know, so the books that we discussed before, kind of the canon, you know, the canon, you know, would be kind of front front and center, right? Uh, uh, some other books would be also front and center. Again, Leon Feustwanger, the, the novels by this German-Jewish author, his historical novels would absolutely uh, be there, the collected works, you know, his collected works, those reddish volumes that are just imprinted on Soviet-Jewish kind of uh, minds. Uh, but also, you know, we can we think about translations, you know, particular translations from Yiddish, and maybe you know we'll we'll talk more about those. But for instance, translations of Sholem Aleichem, uh, those six volumes, you know, that comes out come out in the 1950s, those will be sixties. Uh, I'm sorry, nineteen fifties. Those would be front front and center. Yeah. Uh, the bottom shelf is sometimes you would have the books that really need to be hidden. Yeah. Uh, So, for instance, you know, I mentioned translations from Yiddish, of which there were so, so many, Uh, and then there were very few translations from Hebrew, translations of Israeli literature, right, that come out before the breaking of diplomatic relations between the Soviet Union and Israel in the aftermath of the Six-Day War. So you have a number of collections of Israeli prose and poetry uh, that come out in the 1960s. in small print runs, and those would probably be mainly available to the readers in the larger cities, primarily Moscow. You know, maybe maybe Leningrad, uh, and were just tremendously prized, right? Because of this incredible sense of solidarity that Soviet Jews uh, had had with Israel. Once the diplomatic relations are broken and Israel becomes the absolute enemy for the Soviet, uh, for the Soviet regime, those books would be expunged. Just extracted from you know library circulation and would be just absolute anathema. So if you happen to have a copy of that book, you would you would need to hide it pretty well. You would need to hide it pretty well, or maybe even some would get rid of those books. Um, thinking back to uh, you know the books that one would get rid of, uh, and I and I provide these uh, just uh, heartbreaking memoirs in the book, and those come from the period of uh, post war anti semitic campaigns during the last years of Stalin's Stalin's rule where he decimated uh, uh, Yiddish Yiddish literature and and, and 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 killed all the major Yiddish uh, Yiddish writers. So uh, so some people who, who had the Yiddish books and I give the testimony by uh, a Lithu- one Lithuanian Yiddish writer, they just burned they b- were burning their books their yiddish books their hebrew books because they were just so terrified of course that was during during stalin's period uh later on you know it's not as as dramatic but so the bottom shelf right the books that are just, you're afraid you're afraid to put up the other books that would be there uh and those i think are really really interesting uh are the books that come kind of from two uh uh two branches of the uh you know of the bookshelf one is from uh, this field of Soviet social science that was created that was called uh, a, a scientific atheism. Now, which atheism? So, of course, you know, within the Soviet, you know, for the, for the Soviets, all religions are, are horrible and anathema, opium for the masses, right? But there was an understanding that we still need to study them scientifically, scientifically meaning from a Marxist perspective. And so Judaism was a part of that, right? There were quite a few books produced by scholars working within that field that would, again, present Judaism as as a reactionary product and as something that needs to be gotten rid of and something that will outlive itself. But what is interesting is that some of the authors, some of the scholars who wrote those books, and I talk about some of them, like Shachnovich and Berinki, they did write those books sometimes more successfully, sometimes less successfully, really between the lines, right? And Mikhail Shaknovich, who was a professor in the Langrad University, very, very interesting here, and really talked about later on at the end of his life, talked about how that's exactly what he did, right? They really were writing within the kind of these strict ideological confines, uh, but they were inserting information that the readers could use, information about. Judaism right in the history of Judaism and Jewish thinkers or sometimes they would insert information about the Holocaust right so so these books that ostensibly on the surface were anti judaic right and some would even there's some who disagree with my interpretation of these works some would see them as just absolutely anti-semitic and and just a you know a product of this, Kind of horrible ideological machine. I think it's more complex, right? And this is where I think they were really kind of working within this Straussian mode of writing between the lines, and then hoping that the readers and the Jewish readers would be able to read them between the lines, right? And so those books would be on the on the bottom on the bottom shelf, right? Uh, another branch, and this is much more pernicious and and really plainly anti-Semitic. Are just so so many books that were produced about Israel and Zionism yeah uh, there's entire kind of anti-zionist signs that was created in the Soviet Union that regrettably can kind of is alive is alive to this day uh, and So unlike those earlier books that I mentioned earlier, right, on on Judaism that come from this kind of scientific atheist scholarship, these books on Israel and Zionism were really, so many of them were just plainly, plainly anti-Semitic. But even those books, the Soviet Jewish readers also tried to read, not so much between the lines, but by crossing out the lines, right? Crossing out all this ideological, Uh, All this ideological stuff. Right. And just gleaming some information about Israel, the history of Israel, the history of Zionism. Right. Uh, And 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 uh, and yeah, using using those books uh, for that purpose. Another purpose, you know, and there are all these kind of urban myth about that is that, you know, sometimes kind of Soviet Jews would just buy these books just so that they could destroy them. And, and, uh, and, and so, uh, so it was, a, it was a diff, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story, right, about how even kind of that, as I said, hateful, pernicious, uh, anti-Semitic literature, within that context, within that Soviet context, where anything, anything that had to do with Jews, Judaism, Jewishness, Israel, was absolutely, the Soviet Jewish readers thirsted after it. Right. And, and many of them knew how to, how to do that. Right. And then it's so interesting that those books would also travel with them to wherever they end up. Right. So I found so many of these books in secondhand, secondhand Russian bookstores in Israel, for instance. Right. Which again means that they came, they came with their, um, you know, with their, with their uh, with their readers. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the bottom shelf, this, this ideological, ideological Soviet stuff. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of impossible to fully understand and appreciate without taking this, the context, the overall context, that vacuum that existed around anything Jewish uh, into, uh, into, into account.
0: There really is so much rich material in your book, um, and I think one of the things that stands out is that it's extremely nuanced, particularly when it comes to um, Jewish understandings or Soviet Jewish understandings of of self. And one of the largest tensions that you really take up is this tension between nationalism and internationalism and how Soviet Jews navigate that tension. So I'm wondering if you might take a moment just to kind of walk listeners through that um, and how Soviet Jews are are grappling with that.
1: Thank you. Thank you. A very, very interesting, very interesting question. And you know, to 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 answer that question and kind of this tension between nationalism and internationalism that you that you're talking about, and again, we need to go back to Forstwanger, right? Because this is where it really, uh, really begins. So just to you know a little bit more on Forstwanger, tremendously popular writer in general, you know, from the 19, 1920s and on, who writes these historical novels that deal with so many of them deal with Jewish history, ancient Jewish history, uh, you know, more modern Jewish history, and then. You know what happens in Germany when the Nazis come to power. Feuchtwanger leaves leaves Germany and then you know through France and you know various hardships. Ultimately, ends up in the United States where he lives, you know, until his death in the nineteen fifties. You know, in L.A. in the Pacific Palisades, right next to, you know, Thomas Mann and and the other kind of German uh, German emigres. Uh and so Voishtvanger uh, writes a trilogy uh, about. Josephus Josephus Flavius, this ancient Jewish uh historian thanks to whom we really know so much about the war between the Roman Empire and 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 the Jews destruction of 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 the Jewish uh, state during that period and destruction of the Second Temple yeah uh, and so and 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 really kind of uh writes these this trilogy in the in the 1930s and and really through Josephus, he's going he says himself he's trying to resolve this dilemma between what he calls nationalism in other words kind of clinging to one's jewish identity and the value and the value of it on the one hand and on the other hand what he calls sometimes cosmopolitanism being a citizen of the world or or internationalism yeah uh, so interestingly ultimate well uh, let me, let, i'll i'll get to that uh Wolfgang visits the soviet union visits moscow in 1937 uh, and uh writes a book that ultimately praises praises the Soviet Union. He has a long conversation with Stalin and and regrettably, well, you know, and this is something that Ehrenborg, I said Ehrenborg was not a fan of Feuchtwanger, and this is why he never Ehrenberg never forgave him for that, is that ultimately Feuchtwanger says that the the show what we now know as show trials. That's all justified. There's justice being made. Now, Feustwanger knew that that was not the case, as we know and understand now, but he really kind of saw himself as as stuck between these two powers, the Nazis on the one hand and the Soviets on the other, and he felt that the Soviets were the alternative uh, to Nazism, and so was going along with that. Now, what's really, really interesting is when he is in the Soviet Union during that period, uh, Feustwanger, first of all, is presented very much as a Jewish writer, yeah, And he constantly talks about this dilemma between internationalism and nationalism, yeah? And he says when he's in the Soviet Union that now I'm finishing this trilogy about Josephus and this tension between nationalism and internationalism, I'm going to resolve based on what I see in the Soviet Union, right? And and there's a chapter in his book about the Soviet Union that is about Soviet Jews. Again, which absolutely kind of... clearly written with censorship in mind, and he talks about Birabinjan in these kind of glorious terms. But ultimately, what he says, and that's important, he sees the Soviet Jews as clinging to their Jewish identity, right? And clinging to nationalism. And later, Feuchtwanger says, through Josephus, and we see it in the last part of the Josephus trilogy, the tension between nationalism and internationalism is resolved in the favor of nationalism, right? Josephus, who prior to that saw himself as a citizen of the world, as part of this Roman Empire, returns to the land of Israel where he is killed by a Roman legionnaire, right? He returns to his roots. He returns to that, well, to nationalism, to use uh, to use uh, Feuchtwanger's terms, right? Uh, so this, I think, was really, really important, again, for Soviet Jewish readers and why Feuchtwanger's novels were so, so important. Because through them, not only could they could learn so much about Jewish history, but they could really understand their own jewish identity uh, th- uh you know through that of course later you know in the, again, it's the thinking about the anti-semitic campaigns in the last years of stalin's rule cosmopolitanism becomes a dirty word an anti-cosmopolitan campaign which was essentially an anti an anti you know anti-semitic campaign but i think you know later on the periods that i'm discussing you know the thought periods the 60s and the 70s it's no longer really a tension between nationalism or again kind of clinging to one's Jewish identity and internationalism. I think great majority of Soviets of Soviet intelligence and kind of thinking people in general very much saw this very much kind of saw through the Soviet ideological language and, and very much realized that can kind is of, that the very term international internationalism has been completely cheapened and corrupted uh by ideology. So for them the tension was I would say between remaining Jews and just surviving in Soviet society, yeah? And by surviving, I don't just mean kind of sitting quietly in the corner, but really kind of living in that society, right? And advancing within that society because this is where you are. Not everybody can become, you know, part of the Refusenik movement or part of the underground movement or leave, but, you know, you're trying to make the best of the situation that you're in. So it was that tension between remaining Jews and survival in that society, but also. Between remaining Jews and these other parts of their identity, you know, which was Russian, or in some cases Ukrainian, yeah, or and and kind of trying to sort of trying to negotiate between all of these all of these different uh, different ends, yeah. Where whereas say other you know the earlier studies, for instance, the book that I think is very important, uh, Slyoskin's book about you know kind of Soviet Jewish identity, the Jewish. The Jewish century, which very much kind of sort of sees that kind of Russian layer, Russian thrust really overpowering everything else for Soviet Jews, right? Uh, or uh, again, going back kind of to this model provided by Wiesel, yeah, where they're sort of quietly sitting in the corner, silent, just earning to, to be pious. No, yeah, I don't, none of those models are sufficient, right? I actually think, yes, kind of that Jewish. Soviet Jews by, by and large knew who they were, right? And they're not where they were not willing to give up on their on, on their Jewishness, but they needed, but they needed to work out how it relates, how it can coexist with all these other uh, you know, with all these other parts of their identity. And again, depending on the period they were thinking about, depending on where they are, you know, Western Ukraine would be different from Moscow and Leningrad, the Baltic states. You know, would be different from again, you know, eastern, uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, or those late, you know, those old Jews who do leave, those who left in the 1970s and went to Israel because they were ardent Zionists, or those who leave in the early 90s, like my family, right? Uh, where the circumstances were different. So we need to take all these differences into account. Yeah, uh, but but all of that, I think, at least for me, kind of with the understanding how core and crucial that Jewish component the Jewish component was right that again needed sort of that was plugged in into all these other uh into all these other uh other identities and and that has been that has been overlooked that has been overlooked i'll I'll give you one example and that's a very recent example so uh in Israel where of course there are so many former Soviet Jews I think every fourth person on on Israeli street that comes from the former Soviet Union. Uh, uh, there's a TV series, and that premiered just maybe a month ago. Uh, it's called Sovjetska. and it, it is about a Soviet Jewish family in Israel that came in the early '90s. Uh, and the protagonist of the series is is a young woman who was born in Israel, right, but grew up grew up in this family. And so the, this this Israeli series, really for the first time, tries to kind of give this authentic portrait of Soviet Jewish, the experience of Soviet Jewish immigrants immigrants in Israel, and I think does that quite successfully. But what is interesting is that what's completely missing from that portrait is everything that I'm talking about in my book. In other words, the image of the Soviet Jews that comes out of that TV series is that, you know, they were fully kind of cultured into the Russian and Soviet society, and they so much value that Russian, Russian cultural heritage And they knew that they were Jews, but that's where it ended. There is nothing that really ties them to to Jewish history, Jewish culture, Judaism, right? Uh, And that makes kind of their acclamation into the Israeli society, into the Israeli society uh, difficult, right? Uh, And that's a very, very incomplete portrait. Right. Because kind of the the material and the and the layers that I'm recovering in my book shows, again, that there indeed was a Soviet Jewish culture and that Soviet Jewish identity was not just a reaction to anti-Semitism or some sort of atavistic or kind of intuitive, intuitive understanding that that's, you know, that's who you are and that's where it ends. No, there's so much richness there. There is that usable past that uh, that needs to be that needs to be recovered right. and and uh, and, uh, and I hope that happens. I mean, at least at least sort of that's, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote this book.
0: There is, as I already mentioned, so much rich material in this text. And I wish we had time to talk about all of it today. Um, but I do I, I like to ask this question of all of my interviewees. Uh, we all have to make cuts along the way, right? We all have to take some stuff out for publishers or for various reasons. I'm wondering if there is anything that you had to cut that you would like to share with readers today.
1: Yeah, thank you. I know that those are tough, as we all know who write, right? These are tough, tough choices. Um. So first, I would say again, you know, I wish we had more, you know, time to talk about this, but of course, again, translations, you know, translations from, uh, from Yiddish, uh, you know, so many. Of the Yiddish classics, but also of Soviet Yiddish literature, you know, that was revived, you know, to uh to some extent during the Thaw period and and on, and the translations from Hebrew that I uh that I mentioned. Uh uh the things that I also had to cut out, and again, this is thinking about translations, are just some of the novels that had so much importance. And uh, for instance, Walter Scott, yeah. I don't know how many still read Walter Scott, yeah, in his historical, historical novels about you know Scotland and, and England, but but his novel Ivanhoe was just tremendously, tremendously important, uh, because of the very prominent Jewish characters and Isaac and you know and, and Rebecca and the kind of the centrality of Jewishness uh, to the novels. That was sort of a bestseller, uh, bestseller for for Soviet Jews. Uh, but also thinking about how books. We're in dialogue with other cultural products because, of course, nothing nothing exists uh, uh, in in a vacuum. And I was just last week I was giving a talk about the book at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and and after the talk, uh, uh, I was asked this question about the the records, the the, the musical records, yeah, uh, that were incredibly popular. This is something I grew up with, right? So we would listen to all these you know folk tales and musicals specifically for kids we would just listen to these records that's how we would spend our time uh and, and 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 there's quite a bit of Jewishness there uh sometimes again you know between the lines between the notes and you know between between the dialogues but but those you know the the material for those records was written by very prominent writers and poets and who were very much in dialogue with the books that I'm that I'm discussing, right? So those records in Russia, plastinki, Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, people from my generation, those who, you know, grew, uh, grew up in the, you know, the 80s in the Soviet Union, that brings so many memories. Of, uh, but also animation. And there has been, you know, has been some, some work done uh, uh, on, 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 Soviet, on Jewishness and Soviet animation. And again, so many, which was incredibly rich. And, and so many of these animated films were, again, done, you know, uh, uh, scripts written by very prominent writers uh, and poets and, and musicians. And again, those are in dialogue with the books from the uh, from the Soviet Jewish bookshelf uh, and uh, a book by, you know, uh, Maya, Maya Katz. Uh, she wrote about the Jewishness and Soviet animation. Uh, also, you know, some of the things I had to omit from the Perestroika period, where so many, of course, comes out. Right during this kind of liberalizing uh, period under under Gorbachev. There's so much that was published, so much that came out, and 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 I wish I had more. I could I could certainly discuss more of those uh though more of those books. Uh, and then the literature that is beyond the Soviet Union, right? Beyond, beyond Russia, or beyond, yeah, beyond the Soviet Union, and thinking about the literature written by the Soviet Jewish emigres who were so impacted by, of course, what they read in the Soviet Union. And again, thinking about how these books I'm discussing shape them. So I'm especially, and now I'm I'm sort of, I'm, I'm working on that, and I'm part of the group that investigates Russian literature in Israel. Uh, really thinking about the, you know, the immigration, the Aliyah of the 1970s. Uh, that, that, that that there are so many really, really interesting poets and writers who came from that who came from that generation and who drew so much again on that, on that Soviet Jewish heritage, the literary heritage that I'm, uh, you know, that I'm, that I'm discussing, or in that regard, we can think about the writers in the United States, right? This whole cohort, uh, you know, of writers who come from Soviet Jewish families and who now write in English. Uh, And some of them, I think presents a, present a, I wouldn't say distorted, but present not terribly accurate and, deep kind of portrait of that Soviet jury but some do I'm thinking in particular of the work by David bismolski's uh so kind of look at looking at those links I think uh I I wish I that 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 could that could be another chapter I would I would say uh but but as you as you yourself know and you said you know we have to make we have to make choices and also not overwhelm the reader I think that's that's important as well because I certainly did not want to write an encyclopedia I mean that's not that was not that was not the project. Uh, that was not the project I had in mind.
0: It sounds like you actually have enough for another book uh, on that topic. I would like to close with our kind of traditional closing question on New Books Network. What are you working on now, and what can we expect to see from you soon?
1: Thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, so I would mean I mentioned two projects, uh, and one project that I already finished and will hopefully be published. Um, uh, soon, you know, relatively soon, and and this was again a kind of a c- combining the scholarly and and the personal, uh, and uh, I translated into into English, edited, provided commentary, uh, for my grandfather's memoirs, uh, uh so my grandfather, uh, who lived till you know ninety four and and died a couple of years ago here, uh, in the states in Minneapolis, uh, he was a district attorney. Uh, for thirty plus years in Soviet Ukraine, and uh, so incredibly rich and, and fascinating experience, uh, a deeply talented man. And uh, when he when we came to the United States in nineteen ninety three, he started to to write these sketches about his about his experience. Ultimately, he collected them in a book, which was published in Russian. And so this is the book that I that I translated. I think it's an incredibly kind of rich and fascinating document. Uh, and so much of it has to do with also with the Holocaust memory uh, and that understanding of Soviet Jewishness, all of that through the prism of the criminal cases uh, that he was, that he was working on. Uh, so that book is done and uh, you know, Hope to see it out, maybe in spring, maybe in summer, or so. Another big project uh, that I'm that I'm working on and find really really interesting, uh, which is also an extension of the Soviet Jewish bookshelf, uh, is a book on Jewishness and the Holocaust in Soviet and East European science fiction. Uh, so the science fiction authors that I mentioned, the Strugatsky brothers. Uh, so what I'm doing now, what I'm discovering now. Is that there was also so much more? Uh, uh, there is sort of beyond beyond the Strugatskys, right? The the world of Soviet sci-fi that experienced renaissance during the Star period and on. Uh, it was really a Jewish space, uh, you know, in the in the Soviet Union, and that sort of niche uh, that allowed uh, Jewish writers and readers to tap into uh, into the Holocaust memory, but also into Jewishness. In these various fascinating manifestations uh philosophical metaphysical historical um anecdotal yeah uh and so there there's just so so many writers uh who who worked in that vein and uh you know many of, of them have been forgotten uh so many of them have uh have not been translated into english but are just absolutely fascinating and all of them all these soviet sci-fi authors and as I said, not just Soviet, but you know Polish as well. Stanislav Lamb looms so large in that context. Uh, they all read American sci-fi; were tremendously influenced by it. And so there's this really, really interesting connections between uh, between American sci-fi and and the things that you know, like the Marvel universe, and the, and those Soviet Soviet sci science fiction books that were written in the 1960s and 1970s. So I'm immersed immersed in that uh, in that now and then you know, hopefully within within a couple or few years, uh, I'll be able to finish that and, and put that out there.
0: Both of these projects sound amazing. I know for sure that you have another future reader in me. I've jotted down the release of your grandfather's memoirs, so I will be picking up a copy of that. Um, for I just want to thank you for taking the time to join us on New Books Network today.
1: Of course, thank you so much.
0: And then listeners, if this interview piqued your interest, please pick up a copy of Marat Grinberg's most recent publication, The Soviet Jewish Bookshelf, Jewish Culture and Identity Between the Lines, directly from Brandeis University Press or from your local bookstore.